In a few minutes, just going to give people an opportunity to find the room if they haven't yet. We have about three more minutes. I am going to go ahead and get started um, to make sure we're able to take advantage um, of all of our time. Um, I want to make sure this is really kind of interactive and you have an opportunity for questions, discussions um, with your colleagues and really making sure that we're having a really robust conversation. Um, obviously, we are not going to solve the world's problems in an hour and 15 minutes. That's not the purpose. But really, hopefully, um, to really model some work that you can do at your own institutions in terms of having these conversations. So my name is Melanie Adams. I am Managing Director for Community Education and Events at the Missouri History Museum. And I've been there for 10 years, or actually going on 11, I guess, this year. And so what we're going to do is I have a brief presentation, which we'll go through, talk a little bit about, and then we'll open it up to questions. Um, this session is being taped, so when you ask a question, I will most likely repeat it, so um, it could be on the recording so people will know what we are discussing. Um, my first question is, I've done this presentation a few times, so I want to see if anyone was at AAM and saw it there. Okay, so only three, so it'll, it's, it's, kind of, it's similar, but a little different. Um, so what I always like to start with really is that the story of Michael Brown began way before August 9th, um, and I think that's kind of a no-brainer because we're all historians in the room, really knowing that this has been building up um, for decades, if not centuries. And so it's really important to recognize that um, fact first. And the story of Michael Brown is really about the story of a community and a story of history and how those two things collided on that Saturday, August 9th. Um, the history of race in St. Louis has been a troubled, troubled discussion, I think, since the Missouri Compromise of 1820 and continues to really plague the region. Um, one of the things I like to do is first um, ask a question in terms of just Missouri and how many think Missouri is in the north? How many think it's a northern state? Okay, how many think it's a southern state? Okay, and how many people are like, yeah, I'm not really sure. What? Oh, okay, I'm sorry. There was three people thought it was the north, correct? And so we had about seven, eight people said it was the south, and everyone else is waiting to see what the answer is. <laughs> Um, and actually, you're both right. I mean, as a border state, um, Missouri obviously did have slaves through the Missouri Compromise. But if you ask people, some will say it's the northernest, southernest, the northernest city in the south or the southernest city in the north. It's all relevant. I always like to say St. Louis is really culturally, it's southern. Um, just depending upon where you are. The further south you go, you may be getting sweet tea. The further north you go, you're not. Um, so it is, it is really relative, but um, it is really important for this discussion because I think that ties into why a lot of these discussions around issues of race didn't happen. So even after the Civil War, one of the things I always like to remind people is Missouri didn't go through Reconstruction because it was a northern state. Um, and so those types of things definitely played into what has happened. So the first thing I'm going to do is show a quick video called the Delmar Divide, and this is a video that was created um, by actually um, a German um, BBC producer who came to St. Louis um, back, I think it's 2012, and he actually came here or came to St. Louis to do a story about something totally different. So I don't know what, his, what he originally was there for. 
but he kept noticing this distinction north and south of this line, and he didn't know what that line was, and it turns out it was Del Mar Avenue. And so what he wanted to do was figure out what is going on, and it's only a quick four-minute video, but it really provides a good grounding in what we're about to talk about. So it shouldn't buffer on me, so we'll see. Okay, okay, now it's not coming through the speakers. It was coming through the speakers before. Yeah, go yeah, cuz and they te we we tested all of it so it should be coming through the Yeah, it was just working. Yeah, it's coming through there and it's supposed to be coming through the speakers. So we will pause that. So I'll talk a little bit um about what we'll see in the video. But one of the things um, I like to reiterate is every city has their Del Mar um, Boulevard. So this is not unique to St. Louis. Um, unfortunately, when I was doing this presentation um, in, at AAM in um, last year, or actually earlier this year, Baltimore had just happened. Um, so this is not an issue that is unique to St. Louis, but unfortunately it is happening all over the country. So I think that's one of the reasons why it is so relevant to a nice broad range of um, institutions because this could be happening at your institution next. Um, the other thing is when we're looking at the um, story of Michael Brown, it really is not only about police violence and police um, work in the community, but we really also looked at it from an educational issue a housing issue specifically around white flight, around um, segregation um, from the school issue. Um, there was a study that came out in St. Louis that the majority of African-American children in the region are in what are considered failing schools. Um, and unfortunately, our State Department of Education is not going to change that designation anytime soon. Um, because they've created, if you're like, I mean, all of the states are the same, you always have that state test and they keep changing it. <laughs> and so they decided that wherever you are is where, you're, where you are, and so they're not going to change those. So we're creating really a system of lack of opportunity, and all of these things just kind of came together um, at this point. So did they, did we find some? Okay. Well, what I may do is I'm going to go ahead and just go to the next slide, and we'll come back to that. So I don't think at this point there's anyone who doesn't know really what happened on, um, on Saturday, August 9th. And all of these images are from um, our local newspaper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, um, where they actually won a Pulitzer um, for the images of the um, events in Ferguson. Um, but I think it's interesting because I think there are only really a few things everyone can agree on. Um, I think everyone can agree that Michael Brown was shot by Officer Darren Wilson, and everyone can agree that he was unarmed. Everything else, there is lots of speculation. No one really agrees. Some of the arguments, things people or things that people can agree on, did he have his hands up? Um, that the saying that has now become a rallying cry for. Um, for the movement is hands up, don't shoot, and then there's still some 
controversy about whether he had his hands up or not. Um, controversy around did he rob a convenience store hours before the shooting and what did that play into why Officer Darren Wilson stopped him. So there's a lot of conversation around what actually happened, but I think at the end of the day, um, one of the things that people are really trying to wrap their head around is why did this spark the unrest? Because unfortunately, African-American men are getting killed regularly around the country, whether it's by police or by others. So what was it about this case that really um, galvanized the community? Um, and one of the things I like to really think is why is because after the shooting, they left his body out on the street for four hours. Four hours. And one of the things, you know, I say is I'm like, they come and pick up roadkill before four hours. And so it was disheartening. You have his family, you have his mother, you have his whole neighborhood because he was killed on his street. Everyone is there. And so for four hours, they let his body lay in the street. And I think that was really what sparked the outrage. Um, people were just fed up by that point, by the lack of respect for life um, that we, they were witnessing. And that's why I think it's really important when we're talking about this. I really don't use the term riot because it wasn't a riot, it was unrest. Um, so I think, you know, yes, you may have had a few outside looters who were doing things, but at the end of the day, it really was a community um, that was frustrated by, um, by what was going on around them. And so it really was more of an unrest. Um, once this happened, we really had a military response from our leadership. Um, I think if you ask anyone in the state, we felt like the governor was like, hopefully they'll figure it out. So he didn't really get involved until later. It was all very strange. Um, but when they did get involved, they decided, okay, we're just going to call out the um, National Guard and they're going to figure it out. And that's when you saw, oh, yes, for some reason it's not coming, it's coming in through the projector, but not coming in through the speakers. Yes. Right, which was what was so weird. Oh, of course. That's what always, you call the AV guy, and he's like, yeah, like it didn't work. I bet you will, because I was anticipating that problem in the first place. But it worked, so... See, I'm not hearing it at all now, so... Yeah, okay, give me one second. into the twilight zone. Here is our video. <laughs> On my first trip to the... Uh-oh. And it's not buffering. What is it doing? Okay, what did it do? Technology. I know. 
Okay, so we might end up with a commercial just to warn you. What is it doing? Like this is what happens when you test it like four or five times. Okay, there we go. Okay. On my first trip to the church that I was coming from the south side of Kings Highway and driving up, you can see the beautiful homes, the old homes. You can tell that they are expensive homes. And as soon as I got to Del Mar, this is Del Mar, and then you can see just just across the street. Where you this may keep buffering on me. I don't know what is going on with it. So we will keep moving just in case. Yeah, it's going to keep stopping on me for some reason. So maybe I'll try it again later. <laughs> My first trip to the church that I was coming from the south side of Kings Highway. Yeah, we will go ahead and move on. Um, essentially, what the video talks about is really the economic um, disparities between north and south of Del Mar Avenue. Um, and the statistics are really troubling. So it talks about um, really the um, amount of education. So north of Del Mar is about 98, 99% African-American. South of Del Mar is about 75, 80% white. Um, and it talks about the large discrepancies, so everything in the value of the houses. So the value of the houses north of Del Mar are around fifty to 60000 South of Del Mar, they're upwards of 350000 North of Del Mar, um, the education level, um, you have a low number of individuals who have completed a four-year degree, whereas south of Del Mar, that's more than 75% of the population. Um, there's also um, discussion in there around resources. In north of Del Mar, you're not really going to see any grocery stores. It's mostly liquor stores, pawn shops, um, things like that, whereas south of Del Mar, um, there are grocery stores. They're in the process of building a new Whole Foods. So it really is just the economic disparities between those two regions. Um, and where Ferguson is actually located, if you're not sure, it's actually kind of North County. So St. Louis is very similar to Baltimore. We're the only two um, cities where we're not part of our county. So you'll hear people refer to Ferguson as being in North County. Um, but it is really that same type of economic divide um, there as well. So moving on, um, looking at what happened. Um, so during the actual unrest in Ferguson, the, the schools did have to close for a few days just because they wanted to make sure they were keeping both their teachers and their students safe. And so you did have some makeshift classrooms appear um, in libraries. You had teachers going to those and just kind of working with children because um, really trying to find a way to kind of keep life as normal as possible during this time. Um, and one of the things, it's really important as an institution to also make sure that you're keeping your employees safe during this time period. And the Missouri History Museum actually closed um, the day after the um, 
after the verdict to not indict um, Darren Wilson. And it wasn't for a safety reason. It was just because everyone was so exhausted by that time because we'd been going through this for a month um, and everyone was just physically and emotionally exhausted. So it was really nice that our board recognized the importance of just closing. We're like, we won't lose a day. It'll be fine. Um, so the Missouri History Museum is located in St. Louis, Missouri, um, in beautiful Forest Park, and our mission is to deepen the understanding of past choices, present circumstances, and future possibilities, strengthening the bonds of community, and facilitate solutions to common problems. So as you can see, we have a very broad mission. Um, we're actually in the process of revising the mission, so we should have a new one in the next month, but it will still have the same spirit of this one in terms of how we work Work, um, work with the St. Louis community. Our institution is actually about 150 years old, um, and we have both a museum and a library research center. Um, so one of the reasons why I really like to show this picture is, so we are the Jefferson Memorial Building. So we are the first monument west of the Mississippi in honor of Thomas Jefferson. And so this is what sits in our front lobby. And so I always say, if we can do programs on difficult issues and diversity and attract a broad audience with Thomas Jefferson, who is like huge in the middle of our lobby, um, anyone should really be able to do it. So, it, you know, you can't really use that um, as an excuse. The other thing is the Missouri History Museum is a public-private partnership. Um, so what that means is we are lucky enough to get about two-thirds of our funding from city-county taxes. So our annual budget is roughly $14 million, and we get about 10 of it from the city and county. Um, so that's kind of a nice, um, a nice benefit there. So after um, Ferguson happened on August 9th, um, we did have a discussion at the museum in terms of what we should do in response. And one of the things that I was really adamant about was I wanted to make sure that we as a museum were not driving the conversation. It was really important for me for us to wait for people to come to us. So I'm going to talk a little bit about these two programs that were actually brought to us. The first one was a town hall meeting, and it was done by um, BK Nation, and he is actually... Um, a speaker who we've had him before, Kevin Powell. Um, we'd had him before, I think a year or two ago, and he remembered kind of the work that he had done with the museum and the, um, the kind of community feeling um, that we were able to present there. And so he approached us saying, I'd love to do this town hall meeting. And we said, great, we found a date. And then fortunately or unfortunately, that was also the day of Michael Brown's funeral. So we had the funeral that morning at 10, and then this program started that evening at 6. And so there were a lot of high emotions. Um, you can see kind of a crowded um, grand hall area there. Um, we had roughly about four to 500 people attend this program. It was um, live streamed by a few of the major networks at the time. And it really was just an opportunity for people to come to the mic and voice their feelings. There was no agenda. Kevin kind of just kept it running. Um, we were there for about maybe two and a half, three hours. It got heated at times, but it never got disrespectful, if that makes sense. I mean, people were just really emotional by the day and what happened. Um, and it was interesting because we did have one board member who called that morning and was like, hey, I'm a little concerned, you know, are we going everyone thinks everything's going to break out in unrest or riots. And essentially, you know, the next day he was nice enough to call back and say, you know, you guys did a great job. Um, I'm sorry I was concerned, but you know that's why they're board members. So it really was a really nice event, and there were no issues with it. 
The next group that came to us um, was the YWCA and the, Ethical Society, and the Ethics Project. And we work with both of those organizations anyway. The Ethics Project deals with issues of justice in the legal system. And the YWCA, one of their primary missions is um, issues of race. And so one of the things that they really felt um, passionate about was explaining to white mothers what it was like to raise black sons. And so um, it's a panel of African-American mothers, diverse backgrounds and everything, and they were just really having a frank discussion with the audience on what it's like and what they tell their sons, how their sons are treated. And it was a great program because it really did open the eyes to, of the people in the audience. A lot of um, white mothers, and there were a handful of fathers in there, um, just did not know what happened to black boys when they left the house. Um, one mother told a story about how she, and she lives in a very affluent area of St. Louis. She and her husband were going on a cruise, and so she went to the local police department and told them, my husband and I are going on a cruise. These are my sons. Do not stop them. And she's a lawyer. <laughs> but she felt the need. She's like, I don't want them to think they don't belong in the neighborhood. And so, you know, there was just story after story about um, situations like that. It was interesting. We actually had a white mother stand up in the audience, and she was saying that her son was friends with a young African-American man who would always ride his bike over to the house. And she didn't know until he said to her, every time I come to your house, like, or most of the time I come to your house, the police stop me and ask what I'm doing in the neighborhood. And so she's like, I never knew that. So it was just really a wonderful program. And the nice thing about this was it kicked off at the Missouri History Museum, and now it travels all over the region. They are doing this program once a week in churches, um, community centers, um, just a variety of different organizations, and the mothers kind of change on a regular basis. Um, so what I'm going to move to next is programs that were actually on our calendar. And the reason why I like to emphasize this is um, the Missouri History Museum did not react to Ferguson. We have been doing this type of programming for at least over a decade, if not more, in terms of providing opportunities for dialogue on difficult community issues. So this program we had booked, um, we do our calendar about three months, six months in advance, so this was booked in the spring. And this was... Um, a lecture by Sherilyn Eiffel to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. So this was not the original title. <laughs> the original title was um, Brown versus Board of Education. I forget. She had some, some original title. Um, but after Ferguson happened, she asked us to change the title because she was going to then include some Ferguson-related material. But essentially, this was just talking about how far have we come with education and how far we have not, and really talking about um, the work around the fact that the schools are still more or almost more segregated now than they were before Brown versus Board of Education, and really just looking at those underpinnings of why Ferguson happened. That's one of the roles that I think the Missouri History Museum and history museums in general really have an important role to play. So yes, we'll talk about the current topic, but we're talking about it framing it around why and how it happened. And so um, the educational opportunities or lack of educational opportunities is really one of those reasons. Um, the other two programs we already had on the calendar, I'm going to go to the bottom first, Suspicion Nation. This was a book by um, legal analyst Lisa Bloom, and this was actually a book about Trayvon Martin and why this keeps happening. 
Um, and again, unfortunately, it we had a sh uh, same thing happen, and we had already booked her to come on October 15th. She was um, she originally was just going to speak. Um, about the book, but after this happened, we created a panel discussion and we had a representative from the Anti-Defamation League, we had the family lawyer for Michael Brown, um, we had a New York Times columnist who came in, um, and then uh, Lisa Bloom actually facilitated discussion. But this was something that we had planned way before um, Ferguson actually happened. Um, and then this other program is Riot from Wrong, which kind of brought an international perspective to it. Um, this one we did program, it's in the calendar, but we did it afterwards. And this was a very similar situation that happened in London. And we knew nothing about it, but um, one of our organizations that we work with, um, ABS Association, um, OBS, Organization for Black Struggle, um, brought this program to us. And it was wonderful because in, in addition to the documentary, they actually flew in about seven or eight of the young people who worked on the documentary. And it was just great. You know, they wanted to go to Ferguson. They wanted to talk with young people. So it really was a wonderful experience for them. And the um, documentary was just right on point with what we were experiencing in St. Louis at the time. Now, as I mentioned, we didn't respond to Ferguson. We've been preparing for this, unfortunately, it seems like for a while. So I want to talk a little bit about programs and um, exhibits that we've done. So the top left-hand corner, um, so for people who saw this presentation, you're not allowed to answer, but um, what do you think that picture is about? If you were to guess and you saw that picture, what would you think? Like, what are they promoting? So some of the answers we've gotten in the past, you know, something like Valentine's Day, interracial relationships, libraries. Um, <laughs> but essentially, this was, um, the title above this was The Best Places to Smooch in St. Louis. So I was like, obviously, it was a slow news day at the Post-Dispatch. So this was the cover of our Go, which is a huge kind of magazine type of insert. And I didn't, I didn't read the article, I have to admit, but it told you the best places to kiss in St. Louis. But this was the image. And so, of course, no one got beyond the image. Um, of course, the internet trolls, it went ugly. It was just horrific. And um, this is actually a real couple. Um, and so what we did was we actually used this as a great teachable moment. And the reason why I use this example is because not everything is Ferguson. There are small microaggressions happening in your community every day, and you just have to look for them. Um, and so this was a great example of that. So what we did was our Teens Make History program, their teens who research, write, and perform plays, they wrote a play about this based on the comments from the Post-Dispatch um, message board. And so, I mean, it was just horrific, some of the things people were saying. And so they did a play based on that called St. Louis in Black and White. And then we actually invited the couple to do a panel. And it was interesting because Emily, who's the young lady, she was like, we didn't think it was a big deal. My friend who's a photographer just said, hey, can you and your boyfriend come and pose for this picture? And then it became this huge, huge thing. But they were very gracious. We did a wonderful panel discussion um, about it. Um, and really just had people talk about why it became such a big deal. And again, remember, this was about 2012, yeah, about 2011, 2012. So this was just a few years ago. 
Um, the picture of the right is Michelle Alexander, who wrote the book, um, The New Jim Crow. And so this program, again, this is one that um, was really important for us because, again, I think it lays the groundwork for a lot of the work and things uh, that we've been doing uh, in relationship to Ferguson and things that happened with Ferguson. And she really talks about the legal system, which if you've been keeping up with any of the justice reports and that type of thing, that really is one of the primary issues in St. Louis. Um, we had been working to get her. We had to book her a year and a half in advance. And she's really expensive, but she's worth it. Um, and so that, again, though, we had over 700 people come to that. And again, it was because we were viewed as that space where people felt that they would be able to have um, a good discussion and a respectful discussion around the issues she presented. And finally, down at the bottom, that is an image from um, Captive Passage, which was an exhibit we did almost 10 years ago. But it really shows that... Um, we really do try and present exhibits for diverse audiences. So it's everything from Captive Passage to America I Am, which is the Tavis Smiley exhibit, um, the Race exhibit, which was one of our most popular um, exhibits over the last decade, um, to everything from closing. We just did um, State of Deception, The Power of Nazi Propaganda. So I think based on our exhibit schedule as well, our community really expects to be challenged and really be presented with, um, with those difficult issues. So there were a few um, lessons that were reinforced by, um, by what happened in Ferguson. Um, the first one really is to develop programs in partnership with community organizations. I cannot stress this enough. This really helped us um, not only in building audience, but really also um, just making sure that all voices were at the table. As I mentioned early on, I wanted to make sure that we weren't the first ones out the gate with a program, but it really was the community coming to us. Um, create a, a, opportunities for all voices to be heard, which can sometimes be easier, uh, harder than it sounds. Um, for example, a lot of our programming around Ferguson will get a complaint that we're not telling the um, police officer's side of the story. And one of the things, we've, like, we've invited them. They don't want to talk about it, or they're not going to talk about it. So it's not that we haven't invited both sides. And, and sometimes we will get an officer or two who's not in that area to be able to come and talk in generalities. But it's really hard to get both, um, both parties at a table to really have those conversations. Um, but I am happy to say that we are starting some collaboration programs this fall with this winter sorry with our police department um, because they are seeing the importance of getting out there they've started a program called um, coffee with a cop where they just show up at different McDonald's and Starbucks and have conversations um, so we have a coffee exhibit coming up so we're looking at partnering doing things there um, articulate prog uh, program objectives and outcomes to audiences. This is really important because what will happen is someone will come to a panel discussion, and it really is kind of an information panel discussion, educational opportunity, and people think it's going to be maybe more of an opportunity to argue, to discuss, or they just have very different um, objectives or goals for attending the program. Um, and so we're really adamant about that. Um, the other thing we'll run into is people, after a while, get tired of talking, and so they really want to know, what can I do? 
And so one of the ways we've solved that problem is we do, as you see, this is an um, image of different information tables. So we do that for a lot of our programs. So if we have a program on a certain subject, we'll find community organizations to come usually about a half an hour, hour before the program, set up tables. So if people want more information about how they can help, they're able to do that as well. Um, so also allow for some program flexibility without taking it off purpose. It's so easy. I'm sure we're all type A, and it's like, no, we have to end at 8.30. Um, but really allowing that flexibility to happen, especially around um, these important topics, but really try to bring it back. Because sometimes it's easy for speakers or for audience members to start arguing with the speaker, and then it becomes unproductive for everyone involved. Um, create opportunities for involvement. Those are our information tables. And also revisit museum policies related to protests, signs, things that you wouldn't think of, because that's one of the things that happened. After it happened, we're all like, what is our policy on protests and signs? And we actually had one um, in terms of signs were not allowed in the building. Um, protests, you can protest. We have a certain space for it. So there were policies. We just hadn't had to use them in so long. Um, we weren't really sure what they were. So it's an opportunity to kind of revisit those as well. So really looking um, beyond Ferguson and kind of what we're looking at doing next, um, you have copies of our calendar at your seats, and it really just shows that, you know, we continue to do this type of programming. I think there's a whole, uh, I was looking at it, there are programs that people can say are related to Ferguson, but aren't directly related, so it's everything from Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race, which is by... Um, an author, a white woman, Debbie Irving, who talks about recognizing race and white privilege. Um, it's the anniversary of Do the Right... Is it? No, it's not the anniversary of. Okay, we're just showing it. Do the Right Thing. Um, we're doing that in conjunction with the St. Louis, um, Louis Film Festival, so we'll be showing that and having a panel discussion. Um, so they're kind of mixed in throughout the calendar, but really showing that we're still really addressing this issue. And one of the things that we're making sure we're doing, again, is really talking about the why and how it happened. Um, more of the current policy issues, things like that, we usually leave to other organizations. But we want to talk more about the history of the region and why this happened. So that really um, remains our focus there. Okay, well, that is the end of my presentation, so I would love to have questions and discussions from the audience. If there are specific things you are wondering or things in your own community that you're trying to kind of figure out how to address, we'd be happy to discuss those as well. Yes? Okay, so how do we educate our board? The nice thing is our board has been used to us doing these types of activities. Um, our president, um, we have a new president now, but our past president was very involved in the community. He sat on the school board. He um, ran a few community organizations. And so we were always actively engaged in the community. So this was just part of our DNA. And so for the fact for us to only have one board member who called, <laughs> you know, kind of says a lot. Um, so they just, and they're actually very proud of it. They are proud that we um, have been out there really doing this work, and they actually tout that as a positive and the value that we add to the community. Yes? When you do these type of events after an event like Ferguson, are you drawing new folks to the museum, or are you seeing sort of the same 
Well, there is a core group, I would say, of our usual suspects, but there are people who've never stepped foot in the museum before who come purely because we're having this discussion. And our goal is really to provide opportunities for people to enter at different points because some people um, may feel more comfortable going through an exhibit and not having an interactive experience, whereas others really do want the opportunity for dialogue. Um, so we really do find that it's a nice mix. But I do know just based on going to most of our programs, I do see kind of the same people, a core group of them who will come, and others just that float in and out. Great. Over there. That is actually our next next step. Um, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence, but we have not done a very good job at all of defining our value. Now, we know we have value, but we need to be able to really show that. Um, and so that's really on our strategic plan starting um, next year to really find a way to create meaningful um, evaluations and assessments. Um, but we do try to capture people's thoughts as they leave with a brief kind of two or three question um, evaluation. And most of, 90% of them have been pretty positive, um, but again, you'll get those people who may have had a different expectation for the program going in. Um, but I think just by the mere fact that we're getting people who are coming back, and people really see us as a safe space to have these discussions. Um, because of where we're located, we are pretty much on the city-county line. I mean, I think it's a block away, but we're close enough. So for people from the county who are scared to go into the city and people in the city who don't want to go to the county, we are the line. Forest Park is seen as like this safe space where everyone can come. And so I think that really helps us a lot as well. Great. Question over here. Yes, yeah, so it's an inner ring suburb, so it's about eight miles from, um, eight to ten miles from Forest Park. It is by our airport, um, and I have to admit, I had never been to Ferguson until this happened, because I had no reason to be, well, actually, that's not true. Emerson, elect, Emerson the corporation, is in Ferguson, and they're um, one of our funders, so I have been out for that, but there's really no reason to go to Ferguson unless maybe you're doing something there, you have family there, I don't know. So I had never been there before this happened. Um, it's near our airport. But part of, the, part of the issue with St. Louis is there are dozens of small municipalities. So to get from the History Museum to the airport, you go through about eight. And you don't even realize, you're like, now I'm in St. Anne? How did that happen? And part of the issue around Ferguson, what was happening is you could get tickets three different tickets going from where we are to the airport. And then people weren't paying tickets. They weren't showing up for court. I mean, it became this whole snowball effect. But it's, it's an inner ring suburb of St. Louis City. It's about St. Louis, but it's, but it's very similar. You will find the same issues in the county in terms of the economic disparities.
I think that was a personal strategic decision because I didn't want to be seen as taking advantage of a really bad situation. I mean, we had a lot of conversation about that because a lot of organizations and individuals like just hopped on it in a way that seemed like it was um, more of an advantage to them than the people of Ferguson. So that's why I wanted to make sure any discussion we had those early days really was driven by the community and people saying, hey, we want you to be involved. Um, probably just my president, <laughs> so because it would be my president and then um, my staff. But yeah, we said we're essentially, and also we don't do a lot of stuff off calendar. We really try to stick to our calendar. So, you know, that was another kind of easy out. But again, I said, you know, I don't want us to just throw together some program when I'm not even, you know, this is all happening in real time. And so we just, you know, I felt, my president felt that it was just really important for us to make sure we're not seen as vultures coming into a situation and taking advantage of it. I think we're always doing the story because we're always, I mean, every, like a lot of the, even some of the programs in there really talk about and explain how Ferguson got to be where it was. So whether it's a program on educational inequality, whether it's a program, program on housing, all of those directly tie to Ferguson and in general the St. Louis region. So we're always going to do those programs. But at this point, I really feel that a lot of people have Ferguson fatigue, so I'd prefer not to put that in the title of every program because it doesn't need to be anymore. Um, so we'll continue to do the work. It just won't. We're, we're really trying to get away from Ferguson because it really is the whole region. The whole region has an issue. Unfortunately, he just happened to get killed in Ferguson. He could have just as easily been killed in Hazelwood, Normandy, any of those small communities there. So we want to really shine a light on the issues and the saying that this symbolizes the entire St. Louis region, not just um, Ferguson. Great. Other questions?
Right. Um, the best example of that was we worked with a um, local photographer um, and did an exhibit called The Doll Project. And the name does not do it justice. She needs to rename it. But essentially, she went around the country taking pictures of those memorials that pop up um, whenever someone is murdered. And she focused um, on African-American boys and men. And so we really were able to use that um, exhibit, and that is more of a modern-day um, exhibit for us, to really have a lot of those conversations um, around that issue. We are work is working on a civil rights exhibit that's going to open in 2017. Again, this has been planned years before any of this happened. Um, of course, there will be a short section on Ferguson. But this, um, our civil rights exhibit actually looks at how, or asks the question, um, St. Louis first in civil rights, um, because our African-American newspaper back in the 1960s actually posed that question and said, yes, St. Louis was, or is, um, first in civil rights based on three court cases um, that came out of St. Louis, starting with Dred Scott, Gaines versus Missouri, um, and then Shelley versus Kramer. Um, and so just talking about the significance of those cases in the civil rights movement, and then we'll move it more modern day to talk about um, the incidents in Ferguson. So I think the Dahl Project was one. Another more recent one we've done on current issues, another photography one was um, Hunger and Resilience, which looked at issues of hunger um, in the United States. So that was more of a modern day one as well. Here and then here. <laughs> um, I'm sure everybody in the room is aware that there are hundreds of museums and historic houses and other historical organizations that are struggling to be relevant. Um, do you have any advice for them about how to get to where they are and where you are? I think it's all about the local story. I think that's why I really do that um, St. Louis in black and white photo of the interracial couple, because people really think you need that big event. And you know, I wouldn't wish that big event on anyone, but it seems like all of our major cities have one or will have one. But it really is about those small things that happen in your community every day. Um, for example, we have another, um, we have an African-American community that's in North St. Louis where essentially um, eminent domain is coming in and about to take over their property. And part of it is they can't afford the property taxes to pay for it. And this property has been in their family for over 100 years. Um, so that's the perfect story to be able to go in and talk about um, issues of eminent domain, the loss of African-American communities. I mean, they're, it's so rich. So it's really important, I tell people, you know, I teach a museum studies course, and one of the things, one of our activities every week is you have to scour the newspaper and bring me in a story because that's how you're going to find out what's happening in your community and what are the stories you need to focus on and tell. Um, so really, I would say that's one of the best ways they can do that. And also just trust your instinct and trust, hopefully, your organization. You can't start off with a really difficult, difficult story because you have to build that trust. So we've built that trust over the last 10 years of being that place that will be able to do this story right. So people don't even bat an eye when they see something that we're doing. Um, they just know that we've done it in the past. We'll create a the program will be well done. Um, and they may not agree with the program, but at least they know it will be balanced. Oh, great, right there. Thank you, thank you for the question. Documenting the Ferguson community. So, um, 
Our um, director of exhibits, Jody Soule, who was here for a few minutes, he's off at another program. We do have a collecting initiative. Um, and what we want to make sure we do, because here's the other thing that happened. Um, Washington University and one other organization kind of jumped on Ferguson right when it happened. They created a digital archive. I mean, they are all over it. They've all of a sudden started collecting artifacts, which I find interesting. Um, and so we kind of stepped back a little, and we are doing a collecting initiative, but we want to make sure it's broader than Ferguson, because um, I think, as we were saying, we did not do a good job of collecting artifacts from the African-American community in St. Louis at all. We will be the first to admit it. So now we are doing this civil rights exhibit, and we don't have enough artifacts. <laughs> and so we're just doing an umbrella African-American collecting initiative and focusing um, on our civil rights exhibit and then some Ferguson-related um, items. And there are some things that we specifically want to go after to make sure we're telling this story. And we do have some things in, you know, we have our t-shirts, buttons, I think we have a tear gas canister. Um, but part of the issue is Sometimes people will say, hey, I want to give you this, and it might be something. We're like, yeah, where did you get that? Because we're a little, like, you know, we have to make sure that we're getting things in the proper way. Um, I think, you know, one of our um, curators will say, you know, one of his dream items is he really wants a burned-out car. So we don't know if the police department has already disposed of all of those. Um, so certain things like that. But in addition to that, we're also really working hard on getting the oral histories but that's become problematic because everyone is trying to get the oral histories. I mean, it is just, you know, so really figuring out how can we do that as well. Um, but I think it'll then lay a good model because Ferguson is not the only community out there. And so, you know, the next one we really need to be doing is that poor community that's about to lose all of their land and figuring out what can we do um, to preserve their story as well. So um, we are slowly working on, as we're calling it, documenting Ferguson. All of the, I don't know if you saw in, in the news, there were all of these panels that went up that artists painted um, in Ferguson when um, a lot of the storefronts and things were broken into. They put these panels up and painted them. So it was nice that we were one of the first places they called when they wanted to donate the panels. Um, so we were able to take in some of them, but again, the issue, if you're an artist, you're not thinking this needs to be here 100 years from now. So we can only take in a few because they were going to deteriorate over time and everything. Yeah, question? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. We are not taking an advocacy role. I think merely by the programs we're doing, um, we're really trying to present kind of a balanced view and really provide the history behind it. Like we see our role as we are providing the facts and the situation to show, lead, show how this happened leading up to it. Um, so we're not saying, you know, we're not supporting one side or the other, but we're really trying to present that balanced side. That being said, it's hard to present the other side when they, when they won't sit on a panel or they won't come and talk. Um, but we really do try and do that. Oh, for the advocacy. Know what? That just that has only happened within the last like four or five weeks. So we've been kind of keeping an eye on it. But it's interesting. We actually did a whole exhibit um, three years ago because St. Louis, unfortunately, has a lot of those um, communities. There was one called Meacham Park, which was part of Kirkwood, which is an outer ring suburb, where they essentially took 
the African American community and built a Target and a Walmart. And so we did a wonder, one of our um, curators was from that community and he did a wonderful um, exhibit around that and essentially the lost African American neighborhoods. So we do need to revisit that. Um, part of the issue is we're not as nimble sometimes as we need to be in terms of what everyone is doing. So I know it's on people's radar and we may end up doing a programming program around it, but I don't know um, what other role we're going to take at the moment. Okay. Um, well, one of the things um, I always do is when we're doing dialogue and discussion groups, I always book someone who's trained in that. So my staff does not do dialogue and discussion. We use the NCCJ, um, National Conference for Community and Justice, and the ADL. They both have trained facilitators. We pay them. They come in. They do the work. Um, but in terms of our frontline staff, um, we do have, um, actually, the, I think it's the ADLs coming in this month, to do some training um, just with our frontline staff in terms of being able to answer difficult questions. And sometimes, again, the difficult questions comes with exhibits that you may not think. Like, we had Vatican Splendors. And people were just, I mean, it was very strange. I mean, people were bringing up issues of, like, abortion and all of this stuff and they're like we just want you to see the exhibit <laughs> you know I mean so issues that you don't even think about that aren't aren't in the exhibit come up around the exhibit um, but we really try and do that on a regular basis and um, we haven't done it in a while unfortunately um, part of the reason why we're doing it this time is also because we have an exhibit coming up February March April spies traders and saboteurs which looks at um, domestic terrorism here in the US and so there might be a few issues that come up around that um, that we want our staff, our frontline staff to be able to answer. But we do really try and keep that in mind, um, provide those opportunities. They all have kind of talking points, and we always say, you know, please feel free if they or keep trying to continue the discussion. You can give them my card. I'd be happy to talk with them. But most times we haven't had a lot of issues. It's, you know, sometimes people just want to argue with our docent about a specific point or issue or fact that we say is a fact and they say is not. And so, sure. Since uh, I'm coming fresh off of having read the Ferguson Commission. Oh, good. So I feel a little bit like this problem's intractable. Okay. And it's going to happen again. Oh, yeah. So, And that is a great question because I think in two other sessions, and I hadn't heard this term before, someone said, you know, we, always ha we all have disaster plans, so we know what to do if there's a fire or a flood. And so we need to create a cultural response plan. Um, and I thought that was such a great idea. Um, and I think it's a great opportunity of how will you respond if something like this happens? Do you have a statement um, that goes out from your institution? Do you, um, do you even, even something as basic of, do you know where your staff members live? Because that was one of the nice things that we kind of, the first thing HR, or one of the first things HR did was like figure out, okay, who lives in Ferguson? And making sure, you know, as a staff, we're taking care of those individuals and their needs. Um, but I mean, I think there are so many layers and there needs to really be some type of cultural response. Um, and also a lot of it depends upon how close you are to the situation. So we're eight, we're ten mi eight to ten miles away. So we never saw any um, any people protesting. We never saw any of that. Whereas if you were in Baltimore, and I think it was the Baltimore African American Museum, a few of them, you were right there. <laughs> and so that's a very different response because you have to think about issues of safety. Um, 
And so I think it is really important for every organization to have some type of cultural response in terms of what will you do when, I'm not even going to say if, when this happens in your community and how will you respond to it. And I like to say it's better to be prepared for the worst and it doesn't happen than to, you know, think it's all going to be swept under the rug because this happened on a Saturday. And I remember when it happened, I was like, you know, I really, I mean, it was interesting because it was not on my radar. Unfortunately, it happened so much in this country, it was not on my radar. And then on Monday, I was like, oh my God, what is going on? It just blew up on that Saturday, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. And I are writing an oh, article good. about this. Oh, good. Uh, this came out of one of the pop-up yeah. sessions this week about this emergency response. response. What about a cultural response. response? So I will be glad to give anybody my card and my email. And if you have any thoughts about this, I would really love to hear about this. Um, we're hoping to publish the article in December. Oh, so the sooner the better. Right. Um, if you can get me the information, because... In Indianapolis, of course, we had the RIFRA, the Religious yeah. <laughs> Restoration Act, and uh, we had started, like you, we had started programming for the LGBT community way before, before this happened. We had a collection initiative that started like a year and a half before that happened. Like you, once it, once it, uh, the, the whole thing started with a bakery, not oh, right, right. to bake a cake. cake again, not on the radar. radar. It happened in my own neighborhood, and it wasn't on my radar until as the day started going, it was like, holy cow, what just happened? You know, so I think it is a very important thing to talk about. Once we started getting in the conversation about what would this look like, boy, does that get money. <laughs> so that's why I'm hoping if anybody has some information or some suggestions, please let us know. Um, I would love to get something like this on the radar of everybody because I think it is important. Right. One of the other things that happened was because we had already been involved with the community, when this happened and the other vultures in the area <laughs> started saying, oh, we need to collect, we need to do this, they came back to us. Right. The community felt safe coming to us because they knew we were already involved with them and it avoided a lot of that. Right. And we have an exhibit opening in October, had been on on our schedule for over a year now. Um, and so I, I think that helps. If you can get out into these communities right. before, I mean, you can't possibly figure out before these happen, but if you're already anchored, it will take care of you and you will take care of them. And it's also okay to not jump on everything. Like, it was interesting. So right after all of the immigration issues in Syria happened, you know, my boss was like, hey, find out what we can do. So I call the International Institute. They're like, you're our ninth call. I'm like, okay, you guys have it handled. Knock yourself out. If you need a venue, we're happy to host. But I'm like, you guys can handle that one. We're happy to host it, but we're not going to do it since it seems like everyone is rallying around that topic at the moment. Question, okay, right here. Oh, yes, yes, hi. So, the more that we have heard about immigration, the more I feel like we're becoming community organizers and building relationships and getting stakeholder buy in. So, which is surprising to me as a historian. So, I'm wondering if you can talk about any ways that your role has shifted from more that you've been talking about the nature of contemporary issues and 
in my background, I am not a museum person by training. My background is actually higher education student affairs. Um, so I worked in student activities and residential life for about the first 10 years of my career. And so I always, you know, describe my job as it's very similar, but I can program with alcohol. That's really the main difference. I mean, I'm doing a lot of the same things. You're working with organizations, you're doing lectures, you're doing dialogues, you're doing music. I mean, it really is very similar. But I think really we're seeing our role shift that we are kind of going out there more into the community. Because I think in the past, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we might have just said, okay, we're going to do this program on Ferguson. We're going to have our curators stand up there and they're going to talk at them for an hour. I don't know we would have said like, oh, well, maybe we should call the NAACP, the Urban League, the NCCJ, create a panel, really engage the community more in the conversation and be more of a convener versus an expert. And that doesn't mean we don't have our curators stand up there and do a lecture on something in our collections or serve as a panelist um, to provide the historical perspective. But I really think we've transitioned more to being a convener for community issues than a space where we're saying, we have all of the answers, come learn from us, we have nothing to learn from you. Right here, and then here. Oh. Yes. Oh, just a little louder, yeah. I think that's a great question. I think we, every organization can probably do um, a better job at that. Um, so we do have kind of trainings for our board, new board members when they first come on. Um, there is a hope that board members are coming to programs. And I do have some board members that come to programs that are kind of in the know with what we're doing. Um, but I think that is a really good point in looking at is there a way that we can further develop um, develop that training or that information for the board. Because I think they know that we did, um, we do do programs around difficult topics, but I don't know if they know kind of everything that entails. Because we have, we have a very traditional History Museum Historical Society board. Um, so I think we could do a better job of kind of letting them know what we do. But that being said, even if they're not always sure of what we do, they know it's important. They know it's important, and they are proud to be on the board, and they will talk about it to others. But um, in terms of that really intrinsic training about why and how we do it, they may not be as knowledgeable. Right here. Yeah. Yep, you. Oh, okay. I'll follow Yes. Right. 
And that's still kind of evolving at this point. So right after Ferguson happened, the governor appointed um, the Ferguson Commission, which is made up of, I think, maybe 15 community individuals. And they were supposed to spend the year providing, coming up with solutions and presenting this Ferguson Commission report. And so that's what he's referring to. It is online. Um, very online user-friendly document and it essentially lays out changes that need to be made in St. Louis um, policies. A lot of it deals with um, the legal system, some of it deals with education, issues of housing, a variety of different things that we've touched upon, but the what they haven't done next is figuring out who's responsible for what. So they've created the they've created the document, they said these are the issues, but you don't know who's supposed to work on what. And part of the issue from that is, like, a lot of people are already working on some of those issues. So I don't know what the next step is because the Ferguson Commission sunset pretty much on uh, September 15th. So that was the end of their role. So there's been no announcement in terms of how that report is going to be moved forward. It is now just kind of in the governor's hands. Not at all. Um, we did um, the exhibit Slavery at Jefferson's Monticello, and I always have to do a disclaimer. I'm a UVA alum, so I've been indoctrinated with Jefferson. Um, but we did Slavery at Jefferson's Monticello, and we focused on the stories of the enslaved people. And it was interesting, because one of the things, so our exhibit team, and you know how when you get these traveling exhibits, you have to put it up you know, in a certain way. You walk into slavery at Jefferson's Monticello, the opening thing is a huge picture of, is a huge monument to Jefferson. And we're like, why are the slave families in the back? There isn't, you know, that's the title of the exhibit. So anyway, we focused really on the slave families. I mean, we have no trouble talking about Jefferson, the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, it's not, it's not an issue with us at all. There's no way we could not. I mean, we, you know, people would run us out of town if we, if we were just drumming the Jefferson, the Jefferson party line. Yeah. Great. Any other questions? I think we have time for one or two more if anyone has any. Okay. Most of 
Right. And I think, um, you know, we're just starting to work with our police department. And this is, it, it is, it's really difficult. And that's why I think it's really interesting with what they're doing with coffee and a cop. And, that, and I kind of agree with them in this point. They are not going to put themselves in a situation where people are just going to come yell at them. No one wants to be yelled at. And so they're creating informal opportunities to interact with the public. Um, and so that's really the model we're going to use with them when we work with them. Um, we're doing everything from, um, we're, we have a play coming up in February on um, Cassius Clay. And he was taught to box by a police officer. And so we're kind of working that angle in, and we're going to do some things with the police department. But it really is just slowly integrating it in. Because your first instinct is to like, hey, let's do this huge community discussion, have the police department sit up here, community members ask questions, then it just becomes accusatory. And, and as anyone, the police are going to get defensive. You know, because they're like, you're painting us all with one broad stroke, and the community's like, you're doing the same thing to us, and it just goes back and forth. Um, so it's really more of those informal opportunities. Um, so with our coffee and a, with our coffee exhibit, we're going to have, um, we're inviting just a couple of officers during one of our evening programs, and it's just, they attend the program, and they're able to have kind of discussions with people, really interact with them. And then we're also doing, we do a storytelling three times a week. We're doing um, a first responder storytelling. So we'll invite um, the police department to just be a part of that, and they can talk with kids on a kind of informal basis. But it really is building up those informal relationships before you go for the larger um, discussion. The other thing that works really well, which I've mentioned in another program, is really documentaries. And I say that because sometimes it's easier to talk about other people in other communities, if that makes sense. So if there's, I mean, and there are a lot of great um, ones around the legal system, especially, um, I always tout independent lens. They're my favorite one. Um, but to be able to show a documentary about that small community in Kansas, it's easier for people in St. Louis to sit around and talk about them and their problems. And it's the same problems, but it's easier to do that than to talk about your own. So that's sometimes a good method to at least start people out. Final question over here. Yes? And I think that's a good point about the church, I mean, about the church, because it's interesting. I think that's one of the nice things about the museum. In certain spaces, people behave in a certain way in church. Like, you're really not going to be that mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? If someone, and your pastor's up there saying, you know, I have this guest here, and it's a nice entryway in, so thank you. <laughs> Yeah, that can, that can be an issue. It's interesting because in St. Louis with our Ferguson Commission, um, one of the co-chairs was actually a pastor. Um, and the religious community in St. Louis has been very involved in terms of the unrest and really speaking up on the issues, but I think they would still welcome those conversations. So yeah, so it might be kind of getting your pastors on board first and having those discussions with them for the importance of kind of creating positive community relationships. 
Well, thank you everyone for coming. Hopefully you got something out of this for your Saturday morning and staying late. Um, I definitely appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.